Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Listen, reading, it opens us up to new people, new places, new ideas. We explore in reading, we explore our minds. We open our minds. With The Great Courses Plus, you get access to that. I get access to it and so much more. I am a big fan of The Great Courses Plus. It allows me to expand my knowledge on a huge variety of different topics. It's very convenient. I can watch or listen uh, wherever I am, whenever I want. I can learn more about virtually anything from Shakespeare to medieval Europe to the mysteries of human behavior to photography to archaeology to you name it. The Great Courses Plus. There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures presented by experts who are not only knowledgeable but also passionate about their subjects of interest and expertise. The Great Courses Plus has a great course that I'm recommending. It's a good place to start if you're a readerly person. It's called Life Lessons from the Great Books. You can uh, learn about masterpieces like Macbeth, Brave New World, The Odyssey, and so much more, exploring the wisdom that can be gleaned from each of these stories and the many ways that it can be applied to any culture, to any stage of life, to any life, to your life. The Great Courses Plus is going to enrich your life. It enriched mine. It'll enrich yours. So here's the thing. I've arranged a special limited time offer for my listeners, an entire month of unlimited learning for free at The Great Courses Plus. Enjoy life lessons from the great books and so much more for free. But uh, to get the special offer, you got to sign up through my special URL. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. Start your free month trial right now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. Okay? All right. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. It's good to have Matilda Bernstein Sycamore back on the podcast for the first time in five years. Uh, she appeared in episode, what was it, 237 back in 2013 and is back to celebrate the publication 
of her new novel. It is called Sketch to See, and it is available from Arsenal Pulp Press. So Matilda Bernstein Sycamore coming up momentarily. Uh, I was uh, sitting here yesterday, as I often do, feeling uh, like a sense of frustration, trying to write, you know, just like the the, the usual grind of uh, dealing with a blank page. And I had you know, like not like some sort of like crazy, intense frustration, but just that mild sense of frustration and cluelessness that tends to plague me. And uh, I imagine plague uh, others of us in this uh, community, right? I'm not alone in this. So I was sitting here a little bit frustrated and thinking to myself, like, maybe like what the problem is. <laughs> uh, and the reason I'm laughing is that I'm like, how long have I been having this conversation with myself? But uh, anyway, that's where I am. I was sitting here. I was thinking to myself, like, maybe there's like a loss of uh, sense of intention. I know that some people, uh, you know, they can do it for the sheer joy of creativity and, uh, you know, putting words to a page and being lost in a fantasy world. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, I kind of wish I had more of that. But for me, there's this issue of intention. And I started thinking about it, and I was asking myself, like, why am I doing this? You know, like, why am, I putting my, why am I putting myself through this? Why am I trying to write this book about uh, death and grief and trauma and fatherhood and Buddhism? And I just told myself, I was like, okay, well, if you have, uh, you know, the old line, if you have a strong enough why, then, you know, you can figure out the how which I think is relatively true. I know this. I've told myself this before. And I, uh, I used to think about that back when I was writing my novel. Like, why are, like, why are you doing this? And I remember when I was writing my novel, I was thinking to myself, because it's, it's a grief novel, like a suicide grief novel, essentially. And I was thinking, like, you know, I think the why of that book is that I wanted it to be a life raft metaphorically speaking. That's what I used to tell people when it, whenever it came up in conversation somehow. It's what I used to tell myself, and it was helpful. And not like a terrible idea, right? Writing a, writing a life raft. And so it occurred to me that like maybe uh, part of what is uh, stifling creatively with this, uh, you know, this book that's been with me for far too long is that uh, you know, it's been, I've been too self-focused somehow, grinding my way, uh, you know, through all this painful experience and thoughts and, you know, just all the, the muck of writing anything that's autobiographical without uh, like a clear, consistent, powerful, steady idea of why and who for. Because it can't just be about me. I think that's kind of how I'm wired. It can't just be like, oh, I need to say this, and I need to have my voice heard, and I, I, I. I can't do that. It's more like, who am I writing to? And what experience do I want them to have? And, you know, sort of along the same lines as, as this podcast, at least in the way that like I kind of conceive of it, is I like the idea of writing to my kids or like communicating across time to my children. Like, there's a part of me that in doing this show and in babbling into this microphone and in having these conversations likes the idea of my kids being horrified one day as they listen to this. But at least they'll have some sense, like some honest sense of who I was in my, in my, 
my prime, you know? Like, just, you know, I, I feel like, uh, boy, I, I would love to have hours and hours and hours of recording, uh, uh, recordings of, like, for instance, my grandparents. I would love to get to know them better because we are limited in our ability to get to know even the people in our family. So it's just a nice way to kind of orient things and to think about it that way, like in creating this body of uh, interviews and conversations and uh, my voice on tape or whatever. And so the same goes for my book, like writing to my kids across time. That's kind of a nice, healthy way to think of it. And then I also like the idea of writing to, uh, for lack of a better word, other seekers, you know, people who... Are, are looking for truth or who feel lost or alienated or alone or pissed off or like some combination of that. And uh, I like the idea of writing for people who are grieving, uh, you know, or wounded, you know, like whether they're, you know, whether it's from like a death or an illness or a job or a relationship or some kind of lost future, whatever it is. Like, a, like those are my people. And I like the idea of trying to communicate with a person who might be in that state because eventually we all are and I certainly have been and to some degree am and it's just part of the human experience but I like to write to that place and to that person and uh, to throw a life raft for lack of a better word so uh, at the same time <laughs> I was like you know but I like my work to be funny I don't want to work you know if I'm working with all this stuff which tends to live in these dark places I don't want the book or the life raft to be this like turd, you know, I don't want it to be this like dark, mopey, sad. I know there's a place for that kind of stuff, but I don't want to make that kind of stuff. And I want there to be humor in it. I don't, it's fine if it's dark humor, but I want there to be some laughs. There have to be, otherwise there's no ventilation, you know, and it's just like this suffocating creative experience for everybody. And uh, at the same time, you know, I don't want to force the issue. I don't want to shoehorn humor into spaces where it doesn't really want to live or belong. trying to say I would like to write plainly and honestly and deeply from exactly where I am which uh, brings up the <laughs> brings up the question where am I and at the same time if I'm writing to my uh, children and to others uh, as I described if I'm writing in service of them somehow uh, from the heart with like this uh, spirit of uh, kindness and empathy and good humor, there's also got to be a point. It can't just be, you know, it, just, it can't just be that alone. There has to be a structure. There has to be a pattern to the experience. It's not enough to just barf it all up onto the page and slide it across the table and, and be like, you know, here you go. You're, you know, you're making art. It's artful communication. I feel like everything that I'm saying might just be elementary. Like, does this even need to be said? But, uh, I, you know, this is what I was thinking about. What is my point? What is my destination? Where am I taking people? Is it a memoir? Is it a novel? Does it matter? Uh, you know, at the moment, I'm thinking that it's a book that is uh, self-referential. It's about creation. It's about uh, procreation. It's about birth and death and rebirth. It's about uh, fatherhood, grief, failure. It's a book about itself. And I want it to be short, and I want it to be efficient, and I want to get in, and I want to get out, I want to waste no movement, 
and uh, that's it. That's all I want. <laughs> so there you go. I haven't done uh, a monologue where I uh, essentially complain in a while. I even wrote stuff down that I wanted to talk about, which is very unlike me, but this is where my head is at, and I just want to let you know. Is there anything else I want to say? I don't think so. I think that does it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's get to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, shall we? Let's get to Sketch to See, her new novel. If you've ever done drugs, this book will make you feel like you are on them in a lot of respects. It captures that experience with uncanny accuracy and intelligence and uh, I just had a really great time talking with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore for the second time. This is the first time that we've had the opportunity to sit down in person, and it was a joy. And uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matilda Bernstein Sycamore and the new novel, One More Time, available now from Arsenal Pulp Press, is called Sketch to See. I think it really varies. I think it, it depends on you know, where you're reading, you know, how the audience finds out about it, all those kinds of things. So, like, for example, I, I did two different readings in New York. Um, one was my launch. Um, that was at McNally Jackson. That was fantastic. I did that with Sarah Shulman. Um, so we read together, and it was also really interesting, the sort of, the people who came just for me, the people who came just for her, and the people who came for both of us. Right. And to see, like, the interrelation of the crowds and people who had never heard my work and you know, never heard her, you know. So that was really fun. And then I did a month later, I read at Blue Stockings, uh, where is that's the one store I've read for every single one of my where's books. Where's Blue Stockings? Um, it's in the Lower East Side. Oh, it um, is, okay. Yeah, so it's been there since about about 20 years now. Why have I never heard of Blue Stockings? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a great space. It's a radical bookstore. Um, it started specifically as a feminist bookstore, and then it sort of expanded into a general kind of radical bookstore. Um, and that was interesting because I was coming back a month later. The first reading was really packed and I was like, oh my God, are people going to be there? You know, what's it going to be like? But that one, it was a totally different kind of reading. And there were people there from all different parts of my life. People I didn't even realize lived in New York. People I'd never met before. And it actually had this feeling 
I mean, I haven't lived in New York in like, in, you know, 20 years or 18 years, I guess. But I had this feeling like, oh my God, I'm home. If I could just stay in this room, <laughs> you know, and expand these two hours, you know, into something, that would be home. And I'm always looking for home. So those moments, you know, really excite me. Yeah. Wh- where do you feel most at home? You live in Seattle. I live in Seattle. It's not home yet. I've been there six years, which is kind of a while for it not to be home. <laughs> I just went to Seattle for the first time this past fall and I loved it. Okay. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And, trees... and it's also bigger than I thought. Like I was expecting for some reason something more you know, smaller or more provincial, but like it's a it's a city. Yeah, I mean it's like the biggest city of the Northwest. So, you no know, doubt. it's way up there. And... But it's a big city on, on it, it wherever you would <laughs> Yeah, play. I agree. Yeah, it does have a big city feeling. Um I mean, you know, it has expanded a lot really recently and probably mostly in negative ways, but um Did you hear Jeff Bezos just announce his divorce? <laughs> A divorce? Yeah. Well, he's been like low carbing it, and like he's like his head is like shinier than ever. He's getting like all like ripped and everything. And I oh, think that's that hilarious. He's preparing to be single. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm hoping that he also decides to shut down Amazon and take everyone <laughs> that came to Seattle for that reason back with him. Well, that's what I was thinking when I was there. Is that you have these huge kind of like monolithic corporations that like not only have like a huge impact on the Northwest and Seattle, but like a huge impact on the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like when you're there and you're living there, you must feel that all around you, right? So mm-hmm, many people mm-hmm. work for these companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Their economic uh, like footprint is so large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you, you can't, I mean, is it, is it really that uh, pervasive? I think Amazon in particular, I would say over, like, for example, over the last six or seven years, rent in Seattle has doubled. And that's almost entirely due to Amazon because uh, right. they have this whole part of town that they basically colonized, you know, made into their whole realm. But, and they, you know, they build, you know, high rises for people to live in, et cetera, et cetera. Amazon does? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm. I mean, they rent, you know, to them, but they, it's so, actually Amazon and, um, I'm forgetting his name. He's a Microsoft billionaire who turned into a property developer. And the two of them have basically collaborated in order to, you know, it's called Vulcan Construction. That's a great name too. Vulcan and Amazon. (laughs) So you, so you work for Amazon and then you're paying them rent. Well, I guess not officially, but, (laughs) but I think that's basically the idea. See, this is what bothers me. Like there's, I'm sure there are a million things that would bother me if I knew every little detail about Mm -hmm, the company, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but just the fact that this guy's worth like like an enormous mm-hmm, sum of money, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more than any, I think, single human being mm-hmm, should ever mm-hmm, have mm-hmm, control mm-hmm. over. And he's underpaying grossly absolutely the people who work in these warehouses. Mm-hmm, the conditions mm-hmm. that they're working in are subhuman. Mm-hmm. That to me is a uh, moral offense that is really hard to reconcile. Like It's hard for me to be like, oh, well, you know, He's not that, but yeah, he is that bad. Oh, absolutely. How can you do that? Like you got this, you got this much money, pay these people a hundred dollars an hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can exactly. do it. You, exactly. you can easily afford it. Yes, absolutely. But you somehow don't think that they're worthy of it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the, the effects on Seattle are entirely negative. You know, it's become in some ways a company town and like even the smallest kind of reformist measures, like the city council wanted to pass this business tax on on businesses. I believe it was over 5 million or 50 million. I can't even remember, but it's very large businesses. And basically he was like, we will not pay. It was like 0.05%. (laughs) Didn't see But I think San Francisco just went through this in this last election cycle. It was like a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Similar kind of thing. And what I always love too, because I think Seattle passed a a minimum wage. Yeah. $15 minimum wage. But you know, there's always this rending of garments whenever there's a discussion about raising the minimum wage, like, mm-hmm. oh, we're not going to be able to do business anymore. Absolutely. This is going to choke off our ability to innovate and all mm-hmm, this bullshit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know what? The minimum wage went up. 
is is the is the city going under <laughs> everything's fine everything's you know? <laughs> fine everything is fucking fine and you know what it's at $15 an hour you could double it and everything would mm-hmm, still be mm-hmm. fine absolutely i and agree i think that i think if you double it that's close to where it should be if you actually mm-hmm. adjust for inflation in a, in a true way mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. retroactive to like 1980 I could go on about this. But it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it is. And it's horrifying to, you know, be living in a city of billionaires where the resources, like, let's just say, for example, they could easily just make public transportation free for everyone, right? But what happened instead is that Seattle had a ride-free area where you could ride the bus for free since 1980. Uh, in 2012, the most proper, prosperous time in Seattle history, perhaps, they eliminated the ride-free area. So it's always like, you know, a war on the people who are most vulnerable, you know, rather than like, I don't even know why they don't just do those things as a public relations stunt, you know, because it would cost them, you know, just almost nothing. They'd be heroes. But they don't. It's like they that's how gross they are. Right. That's how, you know, misguided and in their own world that they can only think about their own priorities, you know, saving money through, you know, taxes and like exploiting workers and having, you know, 17,000 houses or whatever they want. I think like maybe it's an issue of human nature for fundamentally that we're all sort of self-centered um like i don't know maybe not everybody but like we have that impulse in us like to like look out for our own interests and so if you're somebody who's underprivileged you've obviously got a lot to worry about and if you're overprivileged you see the world through that lens and Mm -hmm. it's like why is empathy and some perspective so hard absolutely i mean i think people should be forced though to i mean if we lived in a different world right they would be forced to provide for like basic resources you know in order to be exploiting everyone right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah like there's no there's always a minimum wage argument but there's never a maximum wage argument Uh absolutely and i was having conversations recently with friends where i was like i think being a billionaire why don't we make that illegal Mm -hmm. why should any human being be able to control like no one (laughs) needs that much money and there's people dying in the streets and sick and they can't get health care it's like yeah we need to get our head straight about how we're going to coexist on this planet in mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, I don't have all the answers. I just, I get frustrated by like really gross inequality mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I get frustrated by what seems like a glaring stupidity in, in terms of how we organize ourselves mm-hmm, as mm-hmm, a species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you're the same way. I agree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking to you last time, uh, this was years ago. I don't know how many years ago it was. I think five. Okay. So like five years ago talking to you and uh, finding the conversation really interesting because it often surprised me. Like I'd be like talking about something or I'd ask you a question. You'd come back with an answer that I wasn't quite expecting. <laughs> That's good to hear. You're like sub- uh, subversive or like you have opinions that I think cut against the grain of a lot of what might be thought of as... Um, I don't know, like socially acceptable, normal. I don't even, what's the word that I'm looking for? Polite discourse. Yeah. 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 You know, exactly. but I like, I always appreciate that. Cause it's like, Whoa, wait a minute. That threw me off. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is that something that, is that something that you feel like has always been a part of your character? Is it something that like emerged as you, uh, you know, became an adult or something mm-hmm, over mm-hmm, the years? Mm-hmm. Was there an experience or a set of experiences that informed it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, As a child, I was totally introverted. And I was the classic kind of traumatized child who retreated into books and into school, into kind of like excelling in that world. You know, like, I would just read everything that could, you know, come at me. Like, by sixth grade, I was reading War and Peace, you know, and Crime and Punishment. Just like searching for answers. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like trying to escape, too. It was like, get me out of here, right? And I think somewhere around 12, around 12 years old, I realized who I am projecting to the world 
like, I'm never going to find people who I can relate to because I was like totally like scared, you know, and, and people could see it, you know. And um, so I, I basically at that moment decided I have to change, I have to become who I actually want people, like who I want to find. That has to be me, you know. And I, so I think starting around that time, you know, especially in high school around then, I think also I would look for the kids who I felt like, you know, had all this potential. This is funny to say, like, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, but really, like, the people who are being silenced. And I would try to, like, I would, you know, befriend them. And, you know, some of these were already people who I was friends with, but and try to get people not to care about everyone else. And I think that helped me not to care because I was like, don't worry about these horrible people, right? You have to create yourself on your own terms. And uh, I mean, at first it was an act, right? I was completely petrified. You know? Fake it till you make it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would hide in the bathroom at reset. You know, I'd be like, people are like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing great. Everything's fine. You know, <laughs> just going to hang out in the stall here for another hour. <laughs> and then I would just hide, right? I was like, oh my God, I can finally breathe in this bathroom, you know? <laughs> um, and where were you? Where did you grow up again? I grew up in DC. Oh, that's right. So our nation's Crooked Capital. That's where I grew up. Like what's what suburban DC? Yeah, I grew up in suburban DC. Yeah, I went to like a private liberal school in the city. Um, so it was kind of a strange. I mean, everything about it, you know, it was pretty bad. But <laughs> yeah, but I think also like growing up in the suburbs, but never really knowing the suburbs, and then going to the school in the city, knowing certain things about the city, but not you know living there. So it was kind of like this bifurcated kind of existence. And then started you I mean you were reading heavily as a young person and reading like way above your grade level or whatever. But what about writing? Writing, yeah, I started writing when I was probably. I'm not sure when, but pretty young. I would write these elaborate, kind of the opposite of what I write now, <laughs> like these elaborate tales, you know, be like, the ceiling was made of lapis lazuli and the What the is floors, lapis lazuli? <laughs> just like lapis, even... you know, that the stone, like blue, okay. like a, you know, um, or the floors are made of emeralds, you know, the, <laughs> the walls are made of sapphires, you know, things like that. I wish I had them. I don't have them now. Um, and I think sounds like an excellent space in which to do drugs, by the way. Yeah, it would be like, I didn't have access. Well, I, I didn't have access, yeah, to most drugs then. Um, but, um, yeah, and then I think as a teenager, I started writing poetry. Like, I was very influenced by, you know, T.S. Eliot. You know, so I wrote, like, you know, poems like T.S. Eliot. Or John Ashbery I also loved. You know, I wrote poems that were kind of like, they were also existential you know i read sartre around that time and i was like really obsessed with freedom you know and so the poems then are kind of like struggling with these big concepts you know like the existence of god i mean i knew there was no god but i mean they're like they're, that's the the struggle in the in the in the poems so they're kind of like i would say in the modernist tradition of some sort in high, a high school modernist <laughs> so you knew there was no god in high school you know like, well, you never had so did you have a religious upbringing well i i did have a, a bar mitzvah when i was 13 but it wasn't really basically my parents were like do you want to go to hebrew school or not and i was like i think i'll go and i loved hebrew i mean i knew nothing they didn't teach you it was reformed temple so they don't teach you what it means but they teach you how to read it so i could read it really well but i had no idea what it meant <laughs> uh, so i liked that exploration and then but i think by that time by the time of, of my bar mitzvah i knew i did not believe in god you know um, and when do you bar mitzvah like 13 13 yeah, okay. yeah yeah and then what about identity like when did you come out uh a- after i left so um basically like in um like i knew i was queer when i was when i was quite young uh, i actually kind of remember 
like sex ed when they were teaching it i because i was oh you know like as a, as a little kid i was totally persecuted by the kids you know for being a sissy for being a fag you know like and i was like oh i don't you know i don't know that i even knew what was going on really you know i didn't i definitely didn't know what they saw exactly well i knew that they saw that i wasn't performing gender in the way i was supposed to and i also knew i would never be that thing i was supposed to be like that masculinity i would never it was not and i didn't want it you know right but um but what sex ed i remember and they're describing you know different kind and i was like oh wait you know, and then they describe, like, you know, I don't know how they, you know, like, what a gay sexuality was. And I was like, oh. They I, described it in Sex Ed when you were a kid? I think something, like, very basic, you know, like. Oh, we didn't get any of that. Uh-huh. We uh-huh. got, like, some weird, like, gym teacher putting a condom on a banana. We had that, too. Yeah, yeah. we definitely had that. But I remember something where they described something that, and I was like, oh, I guess that is kind of what I desire, but how did they know these kids? Because I didn't really know. And I mean, I think really part of it is that they see gender, you know, and that's what they're seeing. Um, I wonder if it's changed. I guess there's like, it depends where you are. But. Well, I, one thing that's really interesting, I mean, the high school I went to, um, you know, it was a high school that prided itself on being liberal and open-minded. What's it called? It's called Georgetown Day School. Oh, right. Is that Wait, is that where Brett Kavanaugh went? No, see, okay, that's really funny because <laughs> it, that's a more well-known school in D.C. It's called Georgetown Prep. Okay, uh, a lot okay. of things like to be called Georgetown, you know, in D.C. Um, and as a kid, actually, when, you, when I would meet a random, another kid, and say, oh, I go to Georgetown Day, they would be like, oh, Georgetown Prep, you know, and I'd be like, oh, no, 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 because Georgetown Prep is known exactly for that, for, like, rapist preppy boys. Did you, you know, know that that was the case, like, that was that was clear and known oh absolutely it's a completely known fact like people act like i mean everyone those i actually um as in high school i was friends with a lot of girls who went to holton that's the school where um christine blasey ford went and um they were i was i kind of friends i guess with the kids who were like ostracized in that school and we would go out on weekends and just party you know and it was basically um me and this other fag and a bunch of girls you know and they were completely traumatized by that school and would never go anywhere where there were georgetown prep boys you know that was like the brother school of the the school and i i don't think we we never talked about why because we all knew you know and it was just like an assumption and i think in some ways that was like like a safe world for, for me and, you know, my friend who was also a fag because we weren't really, they were not going to taunt us for being fags. And also, um, and for them, they knew we were not going to rape them. <laughs> so, and the, so we would get completely, we were, it was like acid house, the beginning of house. We would go to these clubs and. Was this when you started doing drugs? Because sketch to see, I mean, in the title, you're, it's drugs are evoked in the title. Absolutely. And, uh, we're about the same age. I think, I think, I don't want to presume I'm 43. <laughs> How old? 43. 43. Yeah. So I'm 45. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. we're in the same generation yeah, same and 1995 is the year that you're recollecting in the Absolutely, book. Absolutely, yes. And I, it's very familiar to me. Mm-hmm, Even mm-hmm. though, like, you know, I was in a different context and um, I was kind of like a bolder hippie. I don't, I think you would have been, like, very annoyed by me. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the world of drugs, uh, especially ecstasy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just the chaos of those, you know, of that um, period of youth when all of that is happening. And if you're in a group where a lot of that is happening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's, it moves fast and you capture that very well. Mm-hmm. Like there's that fast chaos and you know, um, 
people having meltdowns and mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. having epiphanies and people mm-hmm, having mm-hmm. sex and people mm-hmm. breaking up. And it's like, you know, it, it's rapid fire. And so when did that become uh, part of your life? Uh, you said earlier that I think it wasn't necessarily in high school. Well, I think high school is when I start, definitely started to drink and do pot. Um, and I would drink. I was total, you know, it would be like, I don't even know. I got, I drank so much. I mean, I would only drink on weekends, but I would drink so much that like I couldn't get drunk. And then I would take Seldane. It was the allergy medicine that says, do not take with alcohol, you know, and I would take it. And then I'm like, oh, good. Now I can get drunk again. <laughs> so it was like, it was basically drinking to escape. And the same thing with pot. And towards the end of high school, I think I maybe did ecstasy once, but it wasn't very good. It was more like speed. Were you out to your friends? Like when these people you were hanging out with in high school? No. I mean, I think it was, it was basically assumed. Okay. But it was, I mean, everyone knew I was queer, but it was, I think I had internalized the message that as soon as I said that I was queer, or if I ever said that, it would erase everything about my life, all my accomplishments. All I would be would be that faggot, you know? And that's true. That actually was true. But I had to, you know, so it's, but but as soon as I got away from high school, away from child, I went to the same school for like second grade to 12th grade. So like who you are in second grade, you know, is always going to be like who someone thinks you are. You know, yeah, you, you're yeah. like, I could reinvent myself, which I did, but it wasn't an entire reinvention, you know. And so as soon as I got away from high school, it was basically just like, oh, OK, now I'm queer, you know. Yeah. I mean, it still took me a while, like about maybe like nine months or something to like come out to my parents, you know, uh, like and how yeah. do they handle it? Well, it's fascinating. So my, my father's a psychiatrist. My mother is a social worker, a clinical social worker, and they wanted me to go to conversion therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was actually good that I had waited in some ways until I, like I they, that was in a restaurant. That was after I had moved to San Francisco when I was 19 and I, you know, left college, moved to San Francisco. So wait, where did you go to college? Well, I went to Brown. Um, and then I got there and I was like, basically, I realized I'm just learning how... Because basically, you know, the myth of, of my childhood was like, I had to do better than my parents, right? I, at least that's not what I internalized. And so I did. You know, I went to like a quotation mark, better college, you know. Everyone, you know, was like this overachiever. And I got there and I was like, I'm just learning to become them, you know. And I need to learn from something else. So I left college because I was like, I need to learn from radical activists, from outsiders, from queers, you know, and... And San Francisco's the capital. Exactly. It's like getting getting your master's degree. (laughs) Especially in 1992. So... Why why, why was it especially... I just think that was a really... um, The early 90s in San Francisco... Well, or the 90s period, but especially the early 90s, I would say. Uh, For me... Well, because that's the time I know, right? But like... Um, it was a really a time when you could still like live outside of a mainstream consumer existence and almost entirely like their world. There were worlds built around that mentality, you know, and and that was what appealed to me, you know. And I mean, obviously, that's not what everyone but God, the 90s, like the early 90s seem far away. I know. Well, they, and they also seem close in some ways, yeah. you know, but definitely culturally very far away, That's you what know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's interesting because like, um, you know, that's also, that's when I got involved in, you know, doing direct action activism, when I joined ACT UP, when I was in all these different kind of coalition groups. Did you know Alex Chi at that time? I didn't because, you know, what's really funny is he was in San Francisco from 
89 to 91. Oh. So, and that's actually really interesting because when I read How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, those essays on San Francisco, they're literally like right before I was there. Yeah. And so it's like kind of like fills something in. And also the way he talks, because I, what, what really, one thing that really struck me about that book is, you know, he was in San Francisco, I believe, for just two years. And, but it feels like the most formative place in the book. Like New York is, it plays a huge role, but it doesn't feel formative in the same way. Well, he got like got his degree in like radical activism. You know, like it, for, it feels uh-huh, like an education. Uh-huh. You yeah, know? absolutely. And I feel like at that time also like a necessity in a certain way because that was a time when it felt. I mean, if you were queer, you know, it felt like everyone was dying of AIDS or drug addiction or suicide. And like, how do you? intervene and an intervention was was to save other people's lives but also to save your own yeah well you know and you characterize it i think in the book if i'm remembering correctly is like generationally you know uh generation x or our generation like you you were the generation after the aids crisis of the 80s where everybody was dropping dead and there weren't medicines available and then like our generation was like the generation after that. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. Well, I would say it's a generation in between. So, and that's very much so sketch to see, you know, it takes place in 1995 in Boston. And uh, if we look back now, we can say, okay, right around the corner, you know, 1996 or so there were drugs, they would change HIV uh, from a, you know, an, an automatic death sentence into a manageable condition for many, right? But in the book, no one can imagine that. It's 1995. It's just before that. But also, actually, in 1995, more people died from AIDS in the U.S. than any other year, you oh, know? Okay. And so there's no way to imagine anything else. And so for me, that's the generation in between because there is the generation, um, the people that came of age, you know, in the 70s or, you know, pre-AIDS, um, and experienced sexual liberation, and then everything fell apart. All their friends, you know, died, basically. You know, people who, like, would have a date book, you know, with 100 names, and they were all crossed out because they were dead. And so I think our generation, and the generation in Sketch to See, is the generation that came of age in the age of AIDS already, right? So, like, the first time I ever heard of a, of a gay person, or, like, someone who, you know, was called gay or, you know, something, was seeing... Uh, Rock Hudson die on the cover of the National Me Choir. too. You too. Me too. Exactly. Wow. That was like popular consciousness was Rock Hudson. And then, you know, sadly, and, you know, there was a gay uh, kid in my high school who was out mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. courageously out because I grew up in Indiana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not an easy place. Mm-hmm. For, it's never easy for a teenager, I think. Maybe hopefully it's getting better. But back then, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. was not easy. Mm-hmm. And he was out and it was sort of fine, like, or I was fine with it, but it was also like alien and, um, exotic to me. Like, you know, I didn't know how to wrap my head around it, but then I took the, one of the best classes I took in college was my freshman year. I took this seminar, um, and it was all about the AIDS crisis Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we like read and the band played on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was an eye opener. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, culture. I hope you read other things too, though, because and the band played on is so uh, you know it's described as history, but really is his kind of like fictionalized version of things. You, you know, know? I, like I wish I could remember more details. <laughs> I'm sure like, you did. Yeah, I'm sure we did. It, it was really kind of like a holistic take on the whole thing. And it's great that there was a class like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like the thing that I remember the most about it is just mm-hmm. that I remember it. Period. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, the other classes, and it was really just like for a guy from the Midwest mm-hmm, who. Mm-hmm. 
you know, didn't have much exposure to culture of any kind, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. let alone gay culture, to like be there in my freshman year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm glad I did. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then, uh, you know, since then, you know, you sort of get an education in retrospect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember watching this documentary. Hopefully, hopefully you think kindly about it, but it was, the, <laughs> it was like, what was it called? It was on HBO. It was like how to defeat a, how to, what is it? How to defeat a plague. Oh, um, do you know what I'm talking you, about? Do you mean recently or you mean relatively oh, recently? How to survive a plague. How to survive yeah, a plague. David and like France. that, I watched that and was like, holy shit. And you just realized like the, the blind spot. I just realized the blind spot that I had, like mm -hmm. while all this was unfolding, mm -hmm. I was like, what? Like playing youth soccer or just, I just didn't have awareness mm -hmm. that like mm -hmm. a catastrophe at this, a human catastrophe at this scale mm -hmm. was happening and I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. It seems mm -hmm. like astonishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that, and that's how separate like queer worlds, you know, or even gay worlds, or even what now would be like a very mainstream kind of gay worlds were entirely separate and still are, I think, in many ways from consciousness, right? And I think, and, to, you know, to go back to that question about generations, right? So I think this is our generation, you know, and the generation I'm, I'm you know, portraying in Sketch to see, these are like 19, 20, 21 year olds in 1995. Um, and so they've come of age where AIDS is inside their desires. Like, there's no way to imagine a way right. out. There wasn't something before, and there isn't something after, you know? And so, and that's a very... So, in a way, I think that's an in-between generation, right? Because it's not that they... Everyone they knew has died. You know, they have an experience with it, but they're actually living in a world where people are denying, you know, that it actually is happening. Like, in the book, the only way people mention AIDS... Uh, or most people is in this very shady kind of like, oh, avoid her, you know, she has AIDS, you know, so it's this very, like, I want to portray this gay culture that, you know, is hypocritical to the core and is kind of, you know, embodying so much of straight, you know, normative ways of thinking. So like racism, you know, misogyny, classism, homophobia, it's all there, right? And it's all you know, plays out in, in daily experience. And so the characters have to figure out a way, especially Alexa, the main character, who's a 21-year-old queen. By the way, I wanted to ask you, is Alexa in any way uh, a commentary on Amazon? Like, did you <laughs> I didn't even think of it, but that's a hilarious idea. <laughs> Maybe we could figure out a way to hack into the Alexa and have her just be reading sketch to see. <laughs> if anyone listening to this, I would be happy to record the entire... That would be so fantastic because you go into like... I don't know if this is true in every... Uh, like a Whole Foods or something, but probably is now. Like, you know, in Seattle and there's like a whole section where it's like... Alexa, you know, and I, I walked in there just to see what was going on, you know, after they took it over. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? Right. But what if it was just all broadcasting sketch? To see? I, I mean, I've been wanting to do the, an audiobook version. You should, so. Your publisher should reach out. Maybe they'd <laughs> it be amenable. It could be free on Alexa. <laughs> Not only free, but mandatory. You'd be like, Alexa, how do I? And then, boom, now you're in Boston in 1995. Do you have an Alexa? Do you have like a... No, no. I have, I have one in my house. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little, scared. I'm scared, too. I would throw it out. Yeah. I feel like it's a surveillance device. Everybody should just send them to Jeff Bezos' house until the house is just <laughs> barricaded with Alexa's and he can't get out. He'd just be like drinking his protein shakes and like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, like working out in his underground gym and his screening room, you know. He could just stay there forever. That sounds perfect. Um, so let's get back to 1995 yes. and drugs. Um, ecstasy in particular. Like, I think that there's some... 
Like I remember there's some value to the experience. You take ecstasy and especially the, cause it's like, there's always diminishing returns with drugs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I always feel like the first time's the best time. Mm-hmm. And then everything else after that, you have like a frame of reference and you're, com- you're in some sort of comparison mindset. But, um, I think there are arguments to be made that like people who have suffered, uh, P- you know, trauma or PTSD, I think there are cases where people have like really had great breakthroughs taking MDMA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, it's hard to paint with a broad brush and drugs, but what I'm trying to get at is that any drug that gives you a hangover, like ecstasy gave me a hangover, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can't be that great for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Just those awful like mornings after where you're like, oh my God, I feel like a fucking death. Oh, absolutely. It's I the mean, worst. Yeah. I mean, the high fades away and it's like your life is only pain, you know? And, and I think in sketch to see drugs are the way that community is formed. Um, and so these are, you know, queens um, whose lives revolve around not the nine to five schedule, but maybe the 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. schedule. Right? <laughs> right. So when everyone's asleep, they're out and, you know, and and turning it out, getting dressed up, going out. And and was this you? I had that life. Yes. In, in, in many ways. Um, For how long? Well, especially in Boston, <laughs> I had it off and on in different times. For me personally, I always had, you know, like, let's say when I was, you know, living in San Francisco in the early 90s, um, like the, the most important thing to me was activism. But I also loved clubs, you know, and, and then actually it was crystal meth. That was the drug that was the worst for me. But oh, like, God, yeah. but like, but so I always had something to ground me. And I was always like, paranoid of being addicted even when i did become it i mean i definitely became addicted to crystal meth but then i stopped you know so i would always kind of and the same thing when i lived in boston you know definitely like ecstasy and club drugs and you know coke in new york so different periods i think but usually for a relatively short time and then i would just stop and you know now i haven't done drugs in like i don't know long time um but but the thing for me in in sketch to see it really is um you know, these are people who, like, they're living in Boston, a city that's rapidly afraid of difference. And they're living in a gay culture that magnifies so many of the worst aspects of straight hypocrisy. And they're also living in a, you know, a culture that isn't really acknowledging the reality that's going on. And also in this particular moment, 1995, you know, growing up with AIDS suffusing their desires and no way to imagine, you know, anything else. And and so drugs are a kind of freedom, you know, they're a kind of opportunity, you know, to exist in a different world. And yes, that world has its limitations, but I I think that it does also provide something, you know, it's just that then it becomes a trap. And so in the book, I really want to show all the ways that these characters are trapped, you know, Um, and... You know, for me, I lived in Boston. Yeah, so you went from Brown to San Francisco to Boston? Um, yes. And why um, Boston? Like, what prompted Well, actually, so I went from Brown. Then I left uh, when I was 19, so after a year. Then I lived in San Francisco probably about three years. And then I was getting ready, actually, to confront my father about sexually abusing me as a child. And I thought, well, let me go back... <laughs> to brown to make sure i never want to go back because i'm never gonna be able to go back if i if i wanted to and i had actually left the second um semester i was there i became involved in this basically a movement for what was called need blind admissions so the university like had a policy they where they could refuse 
um, admission to people who couldn't pay. So, and we're like, okay, well, that's absurd, right? We need, this is a rich, you know, Ivy League university. And so we had this whole movement where we took over the main university building. We built this, you know, like I remember, I think I wrote a 17 page document about why what they called need aware was racist and classist. Good for you. You know, we were on, yeah, it was like, it was a bit, because it was, you know, that school, it was like a media thing. You know, we had like CNN, people were trying to get Jesse Jackson to come to campus, you know, all these wacky things, right? You know, we, we allied with other schools in the area. We had a march downtown. You and know, by, then, by the way, the endowments at these Ivy League schools can pay the tuition of every student. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, at that time, it was like, Brown was the only, this is, this is what they were, this is their justification, right? They're like, Brown is the only Ivy League school that has an endowment under a billion. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, probably. No, I'm sure not. And, um, and so, but at the end of that year, it was like nothing had changed structurally. And I, that's where I learned the most, honestly, because I was like, Oh, you can do all this, but they actually don't care. You know, the, the who runs the university? They didn't even. They weren't even on campus. You know, and um, where, where were they? They were called the corporation. This is great, right? They're actually called the corporation. They were called the corporation, and they only met once a year on campus. That was when we took over the main university building. But other than that, so they knew about that obviously because we took it over while they were meeting. Because that's but, the thing: these schools are businesses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're profitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's like maybe that's like a a late epiphany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, you spend time around academia, and you start to realize, like, oh my god! Oh yeah, cashing in absolutely. And I mean, these like the, these the executive core. level, I forget what you call them. You know, at universities, the you know they have oh, very, deans, like they have great, they have very comfy salaries. Mm-hmm, those people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. It's depressing. So, absolutely, yeah. So so I left there. Um, what was your question though? About it was about it? like getting from San Francisco. Oh, get it, yeah. So then I was like, okay, I need to move to. I went, basically I moved to Boston because it was the closest place with the subway. <laughs> I was like, I need a city, and I felt like New York was not was going to be too harsh. Um, yeah, Boston's like a nice transitional. Yeah, I, I felt like I couldn't afford New York. You know, at that I mean, it's ironic thinking now, but you know, but like because like in comparison, but. But, uh, but yeah, so I moved to Boston and I was familiar with Boston cause I would go out there, you know, when I went to school at Brown cause it's only about an hour away. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I, that's what, that's how I ended up in Boston I, at the same time, more or less when sketch takes place. Where are you living? You like Somerville? Like where are you? I lived in Dorchester and in East Boston. Okay. Um, and you said you could, you can like at this time you were moving back East to confront your father for sexually abusing you. Absolutely. Yes. Did you do that? I did do that. Yeah. How did in, that go? <laughs> uh, it didn't, <laughs> I mean, it went in some ways like I expected, um, which is to say that I expected that no one would acknowledge it. I knew that or I expected it, you know, and I was very, I mean, I was preparing for, you know, for a long time and I had sort of written this document about everything that had happened, about how it had impacted me and about how I was healing. And I asked him, this is my father was a psychiatrist. You know, I said, I asked him to acknowledge, you know, that he sexually abused me. I gave him like three language. I was like, you could say sexually abused me, molested me, um, or raped me, you know, uh, and, or all three, you know, um, and that if, if he couldn't acknowledge that, I would never speak to him again. Um, and so he did not acknowledge it and instead became enraged, you know, which is his typical reaction to everything. Um, and so, yeah, and I didn't expect, and it was traumatizing, you know. What ages was this? 
20 oh when it happened yeah. or when i was a child very young yeah very young i i mean i it's, it's interesting how these things work is like the more i remember the younger it gets Ugh, so i'm you sorry know, yeah um but good for you for confronting thank you <laughs> you know so so yeah so that that um so that was my story yeah mm-hmm. so you go to boston but boston for me yeah so i recognized all the things about it and i was stuck but i got i left so in the book i feel like I want to portray characters. I'm not sure that they can leave, you know? And so Alexa, who has a lot of similarities to me, um, but one thing I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that she can get out of that world. Alexa, stop doing ecstasy. (laughs) (laughs) Alexa, put down the crack pipe. (laughs) But I think also it's like ecstasy might be the best thing in these people's lives. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, you said something earlier that struck me is that, uh, the way that drug use bonds people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for all of the downsides of drugs. And there are many, there is something, um, I would always joke that like, you know, my, the, the two really crazy intense years of my college existence where we were doing too many drugs. Like I'm always like, that was my Vietnam, which is, a, <laughs> it's a, it's a bad way to, it's like maybe an insensitive reference, you know, for people who have actually had like a war experience, but like for a very privileged kid who didn't have to deal with any of that, um, I think at that age, you're looking for rites of passage and you're looking for intense experiences. Like I had that hunger, you know, and I think that's very natural to that age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is maybe a corollary with wanting, like having a sense of like military adventurism, like it might be distant, but you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Although I don't think most people in Vietnam had a sense of adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, like, they any, were drafted. Any, yeah, they were drafted. That's right. That's right. But you know what I mean? Like people who would be like, yeah, I want to go around the right, world. Right. Like, you the, know, like, yeah. Some military, there's some, scary military there's some people. weird corollary. So my point only is that you have these really intense, um, extreme experiences with people psychologically, mm-hmm, emotionally, mm-hmm. and it does bond you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that is hard to replicate mm-hmm, in other mm-hmm. contexts. Like I feel to mm-hmm, this day, mm-hmm. a sense of like ease and familiarity and comfort, even though I don't necessarily talk to those people mm-hmm, every day, mm-hmm. we, we live in different parts of the country and so on. But mm-hmm, I feel mm-hmm. like I could show up at their house tomorrow and be like, Hey, can I crash on your couch? And it would be no problem. <laughs> and they'd be like, here's some ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's like, uh, let's, go to the, let's go to the, the rave again or whatever. But um, do you agree? I mean, do you have friends to the, you know, from back in those days that you still feel a sense of connection to, or I have some, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think in sketch to see, um, so these characters are in a world that's constantly harassing them. Right. So they go on the subway and, you know, someone's telling them they want to kill them. This is just everyday experience. You know, this is Boston. And, and then why they does live Boston suck so bad. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's fascinating because people talk about like college as, as if it makes people into, you know, like more sophisticated, like, you know, um, you know, more, more liberal or more radical. Right. So where, what city has more colleges than anywhere else? Right. Boston. Right. right? Totally like afraid of difference, you know, and, and afraid. Um, I just think it's a very cloistered town. It's very smug and self-satisfied, you know, as being like the cradle of liberalism, you know, or something like that. <laughs> but it's actually a very, and especially in the time period I'm describing, which is 1995, like just, just, violently afraid of any kind of difference. And I, and I feel like that becomes internalized, you know, in the gay culture, the gay club culture that I'm describing where people are really, and this is true in gay culture across the board, but where people really, um, persecute one another along the same line. Sounds like Twitter. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so I think for the characters, you know, in the book, I think drugs are an escape from all of that, and they're also an escape from one another in some ways because, especially ecstasy, you know, it it creates this bond, like you're saying, that is. Um, I mean, it's an artificial bond. Right? Yeah, I was going to amend my earlier statement because it's like, you know, some of the people that I had these experiences with, I feel like this warm bond to, but it can also go, it can also get weird mm-hmm. where you're like, wow, like last night we were best friends and you were telling me all about something, you know, your experiences at camp and high school or whatever. And then the next morning you're like, who the fuck are you? And yeah. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that was TMI or whatever it is. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so when you were in the midst of all this, um, in Boston did, and you know, it's escapism. Did you have a sense of like, I got to get out of this f- fucking town? I did. Yes. Yes. And I was constantly making a plan to get out to go um, where, well, I didn't know. <laughs> and, and like, like additionally, where is good? Because if a town that is the cradle of liberalism and is home to more colleges than any other place <laughs> per capita or whatever sucks as bad as it yeah. does, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like where, where, what city in this, is it Seattle? Mm-hmm. Is it San Francisco? Which is sort of, I feel like, you know, a lot of people bemoan how it's been ruined by mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. tech corporations mm-hmm, kind of overrunning it. Like where is good in America right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's one question, but another way I would answer it is to say like, we live, you know, in the dominant colonial power in the world. Like our lives, no matter where we live, are predicated on the destruction <laughs> and the ruin of the entire world, right? So any time we live in is a terrible time and we need to make something else happen anyway. And so I think there are places where there is more of a critical mass of people who are thinking that way. But I also think that no matter where we are, you know, there is still a possibility of doing that. So I'm not sure if I can answer where is a good place. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, like, I guess like the optimist in me or the optimistic you know, strain of me is thinking that right now at this particular moment, hopefully, like, it, like it, if it's not happening now, I don't know when it would ever happen. But I do think that there are maybe more people than at any time in my or in our lifetimes who are thinking in revolutionary terms. And I want to be careful to emphasize that I'm not necessarily talking about like a big bloody revolution, (laughs) but more like a cultural, social, peaceful revolution, Mm -hmm, but like mm -hmm. a revolution nevertheless, because I feel like that is, that attitude is commensurate, commensurate with the scale of the problems that we're facing. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. anybody who's talking about like a restoration Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, versus like a revolution to mm -hmm, me is mm -hmm. missing it. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it makes me nervous because it's like, no, we don't need to go backwards. Like we need to go forwards and we really need to be bold in our thinking Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and revolutionary in our attitude. And mm -hmm, we have mm -hmm. to change our ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And hopefully there's a higher number of people who are on board with that nowadays Mm -hmm, in light mm -hmm. of all that's been happening than Mm -hmm. there was previously. Yay, um, I think in some ways, but I think also people get so stuck in this tragic mentality of like how to change the Democratic Party to make it a truly <laughs> progressive institution, you know. And I newsflash, that's never going to happen, right? And what so, do you, where are you politically? Like, what what do you want to see happen? Well, in that case, I would say, I mean, as soon as this election happened, I mean, you know, the Democratic Party got Trump elected. That's who elected him, in my opinion. You know, the Democratic Party just sort of shut down and made way for something else to emerge. But it will never happen as long as we have this people's obsession with, like, 
this two-party system and this idea that like the Republicans are evil, which they are, but that the Democrats are somehow not evil is you know is and absurd. you think they're beyond they're they're beyond uh, saving. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, I think there are people who have some sort of, you know, ethics within that absurd party, but, but they're stuck in it. You know, they, they're not going to, they're not going to change it. It needs to go. Like if we're ever going to actually get somewhere else. Well, if the Democrats need to go, then the Republicans definitely. Well, of course. Yeah. (laughs) But we need like, what do you want? Like more parties, like, like 10 parties. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that I, I don't know that I believe in electoral politics, that electoral politics is ever going to change anything. But sure, 10 parties is much better than two. So what, what in lieu of electoral politics? Well, I'm not sure that I have, I don't know if I have the answers, but I do know that what's wrong. And I know that, I mean, even just basic things, like if we want like a basic reformist agenda, right? Like people talk about things that don't change anything and they call that reform. But if you want a basic reformist agenda, right? First of all, you know, we have to end the electoral college. Right. Duh. <laughs> but they just proposed that. They just proposed that. To right. But it never goes anywhere. And then every election, they're like, how did this happen? They got, didn't get the popular vote. <laughs> right. People are like, let's just blame Bernie Sanders. It's like, well, guess what? She got the popular vote you know what i mean like but they they like, in in their defense just to play devil's advocate they can't pass it right now right i mean i i realize but i mean if it became let's say the democratic party was like this is our central goal you know like and if they had decided that in like you know 1965 right then maybe we'd be there <laughs> yeah, like there's, there's if so universal health care like you know had been on the table for that long then maybe we'd be there you know just things like that to me those are basic reforms that's what government can give us it can give us health care so we don't have to like you know struggle in order to stay alive you know we could all have housing easily if we just you know shifted the priorities you know things like that housing health care food on the table like to me those are reforms that's not you know revolutionary but unfortunately every Everything is shifted so far to the right that people are like, oh, my God, that can never happen. I'm like, make it happen. Instead of talking about how it can never happen, make it happen. Yeah, exactly. Move the middle. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I always mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. tell people. I'm like, I don't, I don't think Americans, um, maybe especially Americans of a leftward lean, always appreciate how much the middle has moved to the right over the past oh, yeah, absolutely. 40 years. Absolutely. So it skews the view. But if you look um, at other Western democracies... And you look at the left-right political spectrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think a guy like Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton um, would, in your typical European Western democracy, be conservative. Yeah, absolutely. On the spectrum, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Cl- closer to the middle, but still like a you know yeah, like yeah, a yeah. moderate Tory or something like. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I think like we need to retilt. You know, we need to we need to reorient the playing field so mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm. have a. Um, a truer liberal option. Sure. And that will never happen as long as people are just complicit in the same old package, right? The same U.S. militarism, the same, like, invading countries to plunder their resources, the same... I mean, you can package it however you want, but it's the same thing, you know? It's like, people are like, oh my God, Nancy Pelosi is really standing strong. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a war criminal. So, like, if we're gonna... Wait, she is? Yeah, I mean, like, how long has she been in office, like, voted for every single war that's ever happened, you know? Like... There's no, like, I mean, sure, it's great that she says, okay, we're not going to have this wall, but guess what? We already have a wall. <laughs> do, you, do you like any politicians? Like, are there politicians out there <laughs> who you're like, at least, you know, who you feel that on, on balance are representing your views? No. Why Short you, answer. <laughs> have you ever thought about running for office? 
<laughs> People ask me that sometimes, but I don't believe in the whole structure. And obviously, I would not get elected. Are you an anarchist? <laughs> yes, definitely. You are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, what, who did I talk to? Dennis Cooper, I think. I had in early the earliest days of this podcast, I had him on, and we were talking about anarchism, and he had like a you know a very thoughtful. Um, take on it that like goes beyond like what people's typical conception of anarchism is, which is like tipping over cop cars and like right. running around screaming. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not necessarily that like mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's a, it's a genuine philosophy of life and organizing uh, human beings. Like basically there's no, what is it? It's like a leaderless society. <laughs> <laughs> I think it could be anything to anyone, but like, but I think, at the core, you know, believes in ending all hierarchy, first of all, and in building um, communal ways of living with, I'm going to phrase it in a different way than most people would, but like from my perspective, living with and lusting for and taking care of one another that are not predicated on the dominant values that we've been fed, right? And like building alternatives rather than, you know, trying to reform something that we already know is corrupt, Right. So, I mean, you know, that's, there's a very like basic, like ways of looking at it, but yeah, no, I mean, I feel like, I, I, and that doesn't believe that the state is going to save us. This is why I like talking to you because these are not conversations that I would typically have mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. politics and, and about life in general. And I, uh, I've been thinking lately about just capitalism and the way that most people's work lives function and what it does to people and how miserable Truly, or if not miserable, like generally unhappy, most people are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and unsatisfied and feeling like, is this, is this it? <laughs> like, I, I guess my, I guess my overriding feeling is like, there has to be a better way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of kind of taken as the de facto truth when you're an American, that capitalism is the end all be all. Right, right, right. We totally. have found the right system. Sure. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, we, there is no argument, you know, that this mm-hmm, is the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that we shouldn't be in a cul-de-sac there mm-hmm, i don't mm-hmm. think you should ever be in a cul-de-sac when it comes to these things <laughs> we should always be thinking right we should absolutely al- yes. so i don't know it's just i i can't help but feel that we could have um a more humane way of going about things and i think that there's a stasis in uh people's uh, psychology and thinking around it and i think it's it's generated uh in particular from people who benefit most from the system. Absolutely. <laughs> Why would course. they want it to change? It's going, it's going great for them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know. Are you, um, with this in mind, are you like extremely pessimistic about the future? <laughs> I mean, I think for me, how could I not be? But at the same time, you know, I, I, I know people who have been, um, like the the Trump's election has completely shaken them to the core, right? And Trump's election is clearly horrible. You know, it's clearly everything's going. But to me, it's always horrible. You know, it's horrible in different ways, right? And so in some ways, maybe this is what you're saying, is that we have an opportunity now because so many people are just middle-of-the-road liberals who are, you know, generally content to just, you know, maybe do a little recycling and, you know, write a check <laughs> to the ACLU or something. Talk about one now... day getting solar panels. <laughs> right. One day solar panels. Now they're like, okay, wait, 
I think something's wrong. Right. So, but the, but I think the problem is we have these moments all the time, right? But then people just go back to the same old thing. They're like, oh, now if like, I don't know, Joe Biden, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. I mean, these are establishment people. Like, they're like, if that, that person becomes elected, then, oh, everything's just fine, right? And so it's not, Trump is not the problem. The problem is the structure, you know? Trump is part of that. He's a symptom. Yeah, exactly. And so... But he's a very bad symptom. Absolutely. I mean, I agree entirely. Like, we could put him and Jeff Bezos on their own island, and they could have a wall around it. (laughs) This is actually, yeah, that might be a good idea. Like, I'm sure each of them probably a wall. Do you vote? That's a wall I would vote for funding. (laughs) (laughs) Seal off this island. Do you uh, vote? I don't vote in national elections. You don't even participate? No, because, I mean, first of all, there's no reason to, you know, like, um, when there is no choice on the table that actually I believe in ethically. If there was someone I bluffed So you weren't Bernie. You were not Bernie. Well, I think that he was the best option. But, um, and I do agree with, I think I did notice one thing that was interesting, like what, to take one little example is, you know, he, his parents are Holocaust survivors, right? He's, you know, it was basically had a Zionist kind of position. And I saw him kind of like changing on that when, cause his, most of the people who are supporting him are like twenties and thirties and, you know, pro Palestinian agenda is very central to that kind of progressive mentality. And I saw him shifting. So that was really interesting because most of these politicians will not shift. You know, especially if they're very, you know, um, believe, you know, that they are ethical, right? So that was really interesting to me. Oh, okay, so someone who's actually going to shift to the left, you know, not shift to the right. They all shift to the right, right? So so I believe in certain things like that. But, you know, also, like, you know, we don't have direct elections. (laughs) So, like, voting in a state that's not going to, you know, I I always live in, you know, so-called, you know, liberal states, you know, so... Regardless of, you know, my vote, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I feel that way in California a lot, too. It's like, okay, all the representatives who uh, are representing me are voting the way that I would want them to vote. And we get to these national elections. And I guess it's changing in 2020 in terms of the primary schedule and the the consequence of California. But it's the same sort of feeling where Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's not... um, there's not as much impact as you Well, right. An election like based on so-called swing states where they just put all their money in those states. Yeah. Right? So if you live in those states, maybe voting matters on some level. The rest of the country, it doesn't really matter. And but, that's the system that we live in. Okay. So again, to play devil's advocate, <laughs> this, but this concerns me when it comes to like the big picture and the general um, like uh, slow movement like the slow grind of history you know the way that like social progress tends to be made Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's always slower than you wish it were Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and always like there's fits and starts and one step forward two steps back Mm -hmm, but like mm -hmm. over time hopefully you're pointing in the right direction Mm -hmm, somewhat mm -hmm. but i'm not sure that's true right so if we take one example right we took a look at the prison system that we have in this country right yeah (laughs) that's gone in the opposite direction you know we have millions of people in prison you know like it's basically a new slavery, slave labor. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if we look at things like that, I think that's a counter narrative, right? So that has not gone in the right direction at all. You so know? it's not all going in the right direction. And war, I mean, war just keeps going, you know, it's just like every, it doesn't matter. I mean, you have like Obama as the president. So what does he do? It starts drone bombing, right? It's like <laughs> deports more people than anyone else. So it's like, those things are not, are not getting better. But if we're going to look at <laughs> if we're going to look at elections and there's going to be a government and you have a choice between Hillary and Donald like i fought tooth and nail and wanted Hillary to win badly because i there's a huge difference in my mind between the two and i think mm-hmm. it's been borne out 
by the mm -hmm, evidence, mm -hmm. uh, to say the least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I am concerned about is uh, a splitting of the left, division, a lack of unity, this like, you know, Bernie's on one side and Hillary's on the other. I don't think that's helpful. And I think what that does is that gives a greater chance to lunatics on the right like Donald Trump to win the election. Well, but like we said, Hillary won the popular vote. <laughs> That's right. She won. And so by the way, a different he, system. And by the way, he cheated. Who, right. know, who knows you know, what the Russian influence in like Michigan and Pennsylvania and you know, who knows yeah. what that did. But I and I but I think aside from that, to me, like a message of unity only silences dissent. So it's not that there are first of all, I don't agree. I don't think that Hillary is on the left. So to say that they're divisions of the left, that's not the left. <laughs> it's the left in America. But it's like, it's a very like centrist, um, you know, pro-war, neoliberal, Co you know. Corporate left. Exactly. So if we could call it, I don't think I, I can't, I, I'm not going to allow to call that the left. Um, what about Alexander Ocasio-Cortez? Yeah. I mean, I think she has some leftist ideas that are good. But it I is mean, Warren's left. I mean, but they're left in this very, you know, complicit way, you know, so... Is there any way to avoid it, like, once you're actually in a Well, that's the office? problem, and that's why I would argue to, you know, like, that we need something else, right? So people may start from... Like, actually, take Hillary Clinton, right? Like, when, you know, like, 25 years ago, her central thing was universal health care. What does she say about that now? No way in hell. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it, you know what it is? It, it reminds me very much of this minimum wage argument. It's like, it's impossible. Possible. It's impossible. Single payer is impossible. There's money's not there, and it's like, oh bullshit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's plenty of money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how we allocate it. Absolutely. And the fifteen dollars minimum wage only came about because people who are outside of the system were advocating for it. You know, right. like in Seattle, that was Shama Sawant, who's a socialist. So she's like, I don't want a part of any of this. And people are like what this is a completely insane you know that's the rhetoric it's insane you know never mind that insane might be a good thing but um then it happens just like you're saying and everything's fine and everything's so. fine nothing good nothing and to me it's to the like ground. that's where again that's where it's like we shifted so far to the right that we can't think like oh a 15 dollar minimum wage like you said a 30 dollar minimum wage is a reason that's a reasonable reform a 15 minute dollar minimum wage is just some small little step in the right direction it's like, it's like flipping a penny at people almost i mean especially living in really expensive yeah, cities Yeah, exactly living in expensive cities like it's like 15 dollars an hour you should be fine now like what is that at 40 dollars an hour or 40 hours a week that's like 500 600 bucks a week yeah and then you pay taxes on it <laughs> and then you pay taxes on it and then you pay rent in these exorbitant <laughs> and your rent is 2500 dollars. oh my god <laughs> like give me a fucking break break um so let's talk about ecstasy <laughs> okay yes absolutely uh, or sketch to see yes um how long did it take you to write it and like give me give me some like nuts and bolts about like your writing routine and uh like how many different iterations did this book go through that come out of you quickly was it difficult absolutely so when i started to write it i didn't really know what i was doing and that's what that's how i like to write so when i read a novel i don't have generally i don't have a specific goal in mind. Basically, I was done with The End of San Francisco, my previous book. And I had all these stories in my head from when I lived in Boston in similar cultures, but I didn't have a reason to write them. So I kept, I, there were stories I had told for years, but I thought, well, let me just start writing. I'm just going to start writing them down. And 
So I started writing. That's how it started was from those stories. Um, but then something really shifted really fast. And I think what happened was the trauma came through. So the trauma of living in Boston at that time, the trauma of living inside a gay culture that magnified all those terrible aspects of straight normalcy, the trauma of AIDS, um, the trauma of complicity. So all of that. And I think in some ways it became a generational story. So it became a story about um, growing up queer in that particular time period. Right. And it also in some ways became um, like an antidote to this nostalgic vision that I think people have of the nineties right now. Like people are like, Oh, the nineties. Well, haven't put you seen my... friends? It's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> little sitcom. They all have great hair. Exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> it. Right. Oh, maybe I need a septum piercing. Did you get my Nirvana t-shirt? And it's like Pearl Jam. Oh my God. The best man ever, you know? And so instead, Instead of that, you know, I want it because I feel like nostalgia always takes away all the layers, right? So it takes away the lived experience. It takes away the nuance. It takes away the complications. You know, um, it takes away the messiness. And so I wanted to bring all that back. But to be honest, I didn't know any of that when I was writing. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Those things I knew after I was done. But in the writing process itself, I just started writing. And then I... I really got into that space, right? And I feel like, so things in the book, like, change the language, right? So drugs change the language. The Queen's vernacular changes the language. Uh, Boston changes the language. Trauma changes the language. Desire changes the language. So for me, in writing a book that's voice-driven, like, I want to take out anything that gets away in the, of the voice. And the voice is what carries it through. So that was really how I wrote it. And I, in some ways, it was very fluid, the writing process. And I really went there because I was like, I need to get everything exactly right. People different have people have different ways. But for me, I wanted 1995. I wanted all the music to be exact. Music changes the language, right? Like I wanted all to be exactly right. Did you have to do research? Like I, heavy? I mean, I know you lived it. But yeah, like, yeah, did yeah. you find yourself like going back through and like trying to figure out like what, what was it like back then? Well, one thing I did do, not in that way, but after I was done and you asked, so I'm a neurotic editor. So even though I want it to sound spontaneous and voice driven like i probably had about 12 drafts and that's typical i always have that many drafts and i'm just like cutting cutting you know trying to make sure that like everything uh actually that spontaneity is something that is comes through editing itself oh yeah because it's an easy read like it thank you but yeah like there's a i don't know it, it moves great and there's that that speed that i feel like um evokes the dr- drug absolutely you know right? It's, right it's a perfect fit and yeah i i don't know i guess the temptation when you're reading something like that is to imagine it like shooting out of you you know like uh-huh, just uh-huh. in one like burst but i know better having tried right, 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 to right, write right. like that uh, usually it is like it's a matter of sitting there and paring it down and paring it down and yeah playing with the music yeah and i think at the end after i probably about 10 drafts I went back to Boston for about a month and a half. And just did MDMA for a solid (laughs) month. (laughs) Right. And that's something people ask. They're like, so for me, they're like, oh, were you high when you wrote this book? And no, I haven't, you know, I haven't done drugs in like, I don't know, 15 years or something. Um, But for me, writing the book got me high. It was like the best high because I was like, wow, I'm there. It wasn't a little disorienting to, you know, because I had to be like in it, right? Um, but I went back to Boston for a month and a half to like make sure, mostly for the sensory memories, to make sure I got it all right, the spatial and the sensory memories. And so some of the details, 
I could have made them up because, you know, it's you're on drugs. You know what I mean? So you can make these things up. But there are things that I saw that I was like, oh, my God. Like the Esplanade, which is the park on the river. Um, and there's a scene in the book where they go to the Esplanade. They're on ecstasy. And there's a tree, like, that's growing diagonally. It's, like, covered in snow and it's gold in the light. So that is an actual tree, right, that grows that way. And then they look at the river, and the river is really wide, right? And there is no river because it's all, you know, frozen solid and covered in snow. And you can, like, see all the way to Cambridge. And, like, I wouldn't have remembered it like that. You know, because I hadn't lived there in so long. You know, I could have created something else that could have been fun, but I wanted those exact things. Or like the screeching of the Green Line trains. It's like ever present. But you don't remember that if you live in Boston. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And like when you went back after all this time, was it was there any like positive change? Or did it was it all basically go back in fucking Boston and Um, I think there is some positive change. Like okay. I think that people are not as like viciously like on the street like my experience of living in boston is you know like someone would tell me they wanted to kill me almost every day you know so no one told me they wanted to kill me <laughs> see we're taking steps in the right direction <laughs> so they still kind of look at you like that yeah they're but, thinking it but they're not saying it but yeah i mean that cloistered mentality is still there but i think there is more fluidity like, it's not, it depends where you are in Boston, too. I mean, I think there's some, like, I was specifically staying in the Back Bay because I wanted to get, a lot of the book takes place in the Back Bay and the South End. Where were you staying? You used to like way. Airbnb? Like, I rented a, like, a short-term rental kind of place. Um, but also just, yeah, how dark it is there. You know, it was the winter. Like, you know, things like that. The wind, I would not have remembered the wind, you know? So. All these things you miss when you're high as shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the weather! Exactly, I'm like not, weather. Who knows? You have to wear oh, you have to wear a coat in this town. <laughs> what if I remember the light? Do you like the you know like driving across the Mass Ave Bridge? You know because it has no rails, like over and over again. They do that in the book when they're on ecstasy, and it's like you're flying. You know, so like things like that that I remembered very exactly right. And then when like when you're writing, are you like drafting every day? Are you in the morning at night? Like what's your well, for me, I don't have that kind of routine. My routine is more that I write something every day, but I don't hold myself to a specific thing. Do you have a day job? No. You don't? No. How do you live? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> but you mean like you get by, you have a roof over your head. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. But it's mysterious? We oh, no, it's not mysterious. I mean, the thing actually, to be honest, you know, I mean, for like 15 years, I supported myself doing sex work. Um, and, and that was really how, like, I was able to like live life on my own terms, you know, to like, what does this mean? Sex work? Oh, like a hooker, you know, call boy, you know? Um, so, you know, an escort, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, but like, you know, uh, an hour of sexual pleasure for a certain fee. (laughs) Um, but that pays pretty well, right? Yeah. That, I mean, the thing that it allowed me to do was to live life on my own terms for the most part. Um, and also you don't have, you know, your, the hours that you are working are not that many. So you can, I, the things that were important to me were activism, relationships and, um, and writing. Right. So, and actually they, and that shifted over the years. I mean, I think when I started, which was when I was 20, like activism was the absolute center, like by, by activism, I mean, specifically like direct action organizing and, um, and relationships and then writing was that was like early you know in in terms i would write but it wasn't like the most important thing i think over the years as 
like the relationships have become less satisfying. <laughs> and as the type of activism I used to do, you know, like throwing yourself in the street and getting arrested type of things are not things, you know, because of like debilitating chronic pain and chronic health issues that I'm able to do. And you have so, debil- debilitating? Yes. Mm-hmm. What's wrong? What do you got? What's good? <laughs> what you seem healthy. You're sitting here. <laughs> Um, you know, like fibromyalgia, you know, chronic pain, you know, yeah. chronic fatigue, that that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, it's something that's been I've been dealing with for like twenty years. Yeah. Uh, and so I figured out ways to negotiate it, you know. But it's not like it ever goes away. And I think actually that did change my writing process a lot in the sense that, um, you know, I used to write. Like I would be like, oh my god, I have to write this down, or I'm going to die, right? And then, and then I might not write, you know, until that happened again. But like when I first developed the chronic pain, you know, I couldn't write like that; it was too painful, and so I had to um, pare it down, you know, in a certain sense. So at the very beginning, I think I might have written like a few sentences a day, you know, but a few sentences a day. This is like I wrote a novel that way. It, it adds like, up after a while. Yeah, it's like I like a couple years. And I had like several hundred, I maybe had 400 pages, which at that point, that was so many ways to sleep badly, my second novel. And I wrote it with the intention, I was like, can I use this limitation as a strength, right? Because I don't believe in linear structure. And I was like, what if, you know, every paragraph was structured that way? What, you know, so all these things happen, they could be like in the present day, they could be in the character's mind, they might be on the phone, they might be on NPR, they might be at the yoga studio, they might be, you know, and that's all condensed, right? And so, and I remember like that I was like, oh, let me look at this. And it, it was 400 pages. And I was like, how did that happen? I mean, the, and the book is like 200 and something, but you type into a computer, you write longhand. Well, now I use voice software. So you talk your books. I, I mean, I talk them, but it's not, it's, I write it with voice. What, what voice software do you use? I use dragon. Naturally speaking. It's called dragon. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. I, I'm interested. Cause I yeah, think yeah, like, yeah. I mean, as somebody who talks into a microphone way too much. Yeah. And I mean, your voice is probably pretty good for it. It, it, it doesn't like shifts and in intonation too much. Right. right so, right. um, but it's at least like you, you can get it out quickly, have it transcribed. Well, okay. But see, that's the thing. It's not quick. So, because you have to edit it as you write, because I'll say something. I mean, I've done it in a number of years, so now it doesn't do this as much. And also, when I started, it's version three, and now it's version fourteen. So when I started, I mean, it took literally a year before it could of like trying it every day before it could do anything useful at all. Because I would say like, I'm going to go to the corner store, and it would say, you know, the White House is red. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that makes for an interesting edit. You're like, what the <laughs> fuck am I talking about? Right? Because then you look at it. So it's not like I go, I went to the corner stop, and then you're like, oh, okay, that store, right? It says the White House is red, and you're like, uh, so you can't edit that, right? Uh, I mean, unless you're writing something else, right. you know. So, so it does. So that's why I say it's like writing with voice because it's not like I'm just having a conversation. Are you like lying on the couch? Like it's like a dictaphone? No, I speak like in front of a computer. You do in front of a computer. Yeah. You're not, mm-hmm. And you're not like walking around with like no, a phone or something. No, no. I mean, I guess there is a way to do that, but I've never, I haven't done it that way. How, that, long, how long do you typically go? Is it like a couple hours you're standing there talking? Or? No, I mean, it totally varies. And that's the thing where I think, I mean, I, I think maybe for some people that idea of like, getting up in the morning, having your cup of Earl Grey tea and like writing for five hours until and then you can go on with your life. Like maybe that works for some people, but it doesn't work for me, you know, for me. And I think also it doesn't work for chronic pain, right? Sitting like in a still space and like, you know, is always going to give me pain. I think I'm realizing that two hours is sort of my max. 
Like, yeah, and if I I'm think be, like to to really do concentrated, deep writing, anything past two hours, unless I'm really flying, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. rare. Um, I, I feel like that's kind of lost. And by the way, two hours a day is plenty. Like, yeah. And I, I think also sometimes like if I write one sentence and it's a fantastic sentence, that's enough, you know? And I also think people underestimate, like if you're a writer and that's what you do with your life, right? Like you're writing all the time. Like your experience of the world is part of the writing. You can't write without actually existing. Right. And so, I don't know. I think all of that is the writing process. You know, like people are like, well, how long did this book take? And so I can answer, you know, in a specific, but how long did it, like, let's say sketch to see, right? Like I lived in Boston in 1995. I think it started then, That's right? right. That's like right. if I hadn't lived there, then this book would, would not have happened. It takes a while, you know, so it takes a while for these things to cook. You right. Know? Exactly. Um, what do you, what do you, do you have a vision for like what you want your life and career to look like? Are you, do you have some like grand plan <laughs> or is it, um, less uh, calculated than that? I don't have a grand plan. I mean, for me, writing is what keeps me alive. It is the way that I process the world. It is the way that I intervene. And it is the way that I express myself creatively. So I have to do it. Yeah. So it's not like an option. Um, and You think you would be dead if you weren't doing it? Well... I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, if I say if it it has worked so far, I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) I can attest to this. Writing is working. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I think, and I, so I think, um, so for me, my plan is like, I just need to write what I need to write and get the books published. And I think I have been, I feel like sketch to see, like for me, I do like each book to kind of move in a different level. You know, I do want ideally, you know, like things to build, you know, to more people, you know, who the people who are going to relate to actually like find the work. Yeah. Who's the, who do you have a target readership? Do you have an ideal reader in mind or do you, you get feedback from readers who are responding to your work and have a general sense of who out there is, is, uh, ready for your work? Well, I would say, I mean, anyone who's ready to relate, I'm ready for. (laughs) And I feel like I don't write with an audience in mind. For me, I have to write on the terms of the narrator. And I feel like we're taught, especially if we're not in in what is considered the center, right? So the center is like straight, white, male, Christian, you know, supposed middle America, whatever the hell that is. You know, and then maybe sometimes, you know, maybe some straight white women can like vaguely be somewhere around the center. Everyone else has to justify, explain, you know, our lives and why this is important in order for it to actually be there. And so for me, I refuse those terms. Right. Like I need to write on the terms of the characters or on my, if it's nonfiction on my terms, if it's fiction on the terms of the characters. And for me, like, I think we're told, right. The same thing, like something like, you know, that straight white Christian male, you know, like maybe like, Ivy League educated, right? That's supposedly like accessible, right? And I feel like, and so if we're not that, we have to be like, why? Oh, like you're talking about sex work. You have to like be like, here's how this, I got to this dark, degraded, desperate, terrible, tragic place. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Or like you're talking about drugs. You have to be like, 
Ecstasy, you know, it is a, you know, mind altering, you know, hallucinogen, you know, it's a combination of blah, 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 blah you know, an entheogen, like, right? An entheogen. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and for me, like, I feel like as soon as we start explicating our lives, it takes away the, that actually removes the accessibility. Like, the accessibility is in actually like entering on the terms of the characters. I can tell, so, I can say to people listening that if you've ever done ecstasy, this book is incredibly relatable. <laughs> that should, should cover most of my audience, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, well, it's great to meet you in person. And uh, I, again, I appreciate you coming over. And uh, congratulations on the book. And I wish you well on whatever's next. Is there another book in the works? Yes. Um, I have another book. It's done. It's called The Freezer Door. It's already done? It's done. Jesus. <laughs> it's called The Freezer Door? The Freezer Door. Sounds creepy. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much. It's been so great being here. Thanks for having me. Okay. That's Matilda. There she is. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. The new book is called Sketch to See. It's a novel. It's available from Arsenal Paul Press. Go get your copy right now. Sketch to See by Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. You can find her online at MatildaBernsteinSycamore.com. That's Matilda with two T's. You can track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at MBSycamore. Sketch to See. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this show, uh, your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, there's another People app, the official Other People app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. I always have this fear that I'm over-talking in the monologues, you know, like to just, uh, I hope I didn't overdo it. I hope it wasn't too neurotic. I'm just trying to share experience that might be shared experience. It might be something relatable. It might be something that at the very least is amusing. I hope it's not too annoying. I'm always worried about annoying people. I sometimes annoy myself. Maybe this is annoying, but you got to fill up the space. You got to talk over the uh, closing music. Isn't that what you have to do? Maybe it's not. Anyway, it's what I'm doing. Life is a series of choices. I'm doing the best I can. Trying to stay calm and focused. Trying to make sure I make the right choices. Or good choices. Healthy choices. Choices that are of great benefit to me. People I care about. What else can I tell you? Uh, I have some great episodes coming up. Thanks to the Great Courses Plus for sponsoring the show. Go check that out. Thanks to LitHub.com for syndicating the program. Be sure to check out LitHub. It's a literary hub. It's a hub for literature. I like the word hub. I'm looking up at my shelf and uh, there's a bottle of water that somebody left here. Like a guest of mine left the bottle of water here like years ago and I never got rid of it. It's still sitting here. It's like a, it's like an, uh, a proper plastic water bottle. It's not like a disposable, you know, not that any of it's really truly disposable, but you know what I mean. It's like a, it's like a camelback water bottle with the exact same amount of water that was left here when it was left. Why am I telling you this? I don't know why. Just trying to fill up space. We're all trying to fill up space. <laughs>